Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be learning how to think like innovators by exploring the importance of lateral thinking. Among the topics we'll discuss are how lateral thinking can be applied in a business context and what the famous Fosbury flop can teach us about thinking like an innovator. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Paul Sloan, author of Think Like an Innovator and How to Be a Brilliant Thinker, among others. Paul was a top salesman with IBM, as well as the marketing director, managing director, and CEO of various software companies like Ashton Tate and MathSoft. He's the author of over 25 books on leadership, innovation, lateral thinking, and puzzles, and he specializes in speaking and teaching on lateral thinking and innovation in business. Paul blogs often on his website at www destination-innovation.com where you can also find information on the many books he has written and get your hands on a number of resources like lateral thinking puzzles an innovation audit and much more Paul tweets on innovation related topics regularly at at Paul Sloan that's Sloan with an E among the many companies who have benefited from his innovation workshops are Nike, Novartis Microsoft and GlaxoSmithKline Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, Will. Nice to be with you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us from overseas in the UK. So let's dive in today talking about one of your main areas of expertise, teaching lateral thinking through puzzles. And the idea here is people are given a small amount of information and then have to figure out what is going on by asking more questions. What kind of value does this kind of thinking bring to the world of business? Well, it illustrates very powerfully a number of uh, important business principles, important thinking principles, really, which, uh, and one of them is that we make assumptions all the time. Uh, you hear a puzzle and you make assumptions, uh, and that then limits your ability to find creative solutions. In fact, the solution that's given for the puzzle very often is one which depends upon you making all the wrong assumptions. It also teaches the value of uh, intelligent questioning, and it teaches the value of coming at the problem from different directions. So typically in a puzzle, you've got a limited amount of information. You ask questions, you get yes, no answers, and you have to figure out what's going on. Uh, so would you like to do one as an example? I'd love to. So a man was driving down a road. He passed a sign, it said speed limit 40. He drove on, he passed another sign, it said speed limit 30. He drove on, he passed a sign, it said speed limit 20. He drove on, he came to a sign, it said, speed limit 10. What did the next sign that he came to say? Now, that's all you're told. You can ask various questions. But in fact, you have sufficient information already to solve the problem. And most people say it said stop, or it says halt, or it says cliff, or it says <coughs> some other uh, hazard or, or uh, thing. Um, but that's not the answer. He passed speed limit 40, speed limit 30, speed limit 20, speed limit 10, and the next sign that he came to, I have to tell you the answer now, <laughs> said, welcome to speed limit. <laughs> and you might say, well, it's very contrived. And it is contrived. 
But the point is that when you assume a speed limit is miles per hour or kilometers per hour, which is a very natural assumption to make, uh, you've, you've eliminated the possibility of something else. I mean, if you saw Pittsburgh 40, Pittsburgh 30, Pittsburgh 20, Pittsburgh 10, you'd know you were coming to Pittsburgh. And in the same way, you're coming to the village of speed limit. Um, so that's, the, that's an example, really, of how our thinking is in a groove. And every time in business you, you find a problem, you meet a customer, you assume you understand the customer's needs. You, understand, you assume you understand the employee's difficulty. You assume you understand the situation. And very often you've made the wrong assumption. And that is one of the values that lateral thinking puzzles teaches for business people. And, and how did you first get into this idea of lateral thinking and how did you discover the value of it? And well, I always collected them. I loved them as puzzles. Uh, there's lots of the classic ones which appear in my first book, Lateral Thinking Puzzlers. Um, and uh, uh, I was interested then in how you'd use the principles of solving those puzzles in business and whether you could apply them to business puzzles. And of course, uh, they're not directly analogous, but there are many parallels. And uh, after I wrote the first book and it became a bestseller, I started speaking to business audiences about how you would apply the principles of lateral thinking uh, to business situations. Um, and that became very popular, that talk, and I got asked back a lot. And now that's what I do. I go around the world helping organizations improve business agility, creativity, and innovation through the use of lateral thinking. And in one of your books, The Leader's Guide to Lateral Thinking Skills, you outline eight key steps that lead to a truly innovative and entrepreneurial organization. Can you outline for listeners what those steps are? Yeah, well, you caught me out there because I'm wondering what the eight steps are. But generally speaking, I would say uh, the main steps are uh, setting a vision for, for where you want to take the company to, analyzing the gap between the vision and where you are today. Uh, analyzing the problems that, that those represent, generating a lot of ideas in order to uh, come up with solutions for those problems, deliberately looking outside for ideas, uh, deliberately taking a different point of view, uh, and then implementing prototypes, trying lots of different things, and changing your attitude to failure. So uh, very to be more innovative, to use lateral thinking, you've got to be prepared to uh, fail often, fail quick, fail cheap, uh, and and learn. And that's the, the approach that lateral leaders use. Okay, nice. And in your recently released book, Think Like an Innovator, you compile stories from the lives of a multitude of the world's best innovators that represent how they solve problems. And the list of people that you cover is pretty diverse. It includes people like Marie Curie, Shakespeare, and Florence Nightingale, alongside people like Madonna, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. So how did you come up with the list and what drew you to certain people over the course of history above others? Well, they're not supposed to be uh, the, the definitive list of the greatest innovators. What I did was I chose stories uh, which I thought illustrated important points, important aspects of how creative people think differently from ordinary people and how they use uh, these techniques to uh, make breakthroughs in warfare, in medicine, in business, in sport, or in anything else. Um, and I, I, I look for the best lessons, really. So uh, I've used a wealth of these stories in my talks and workshops and built them up. And, and people seem to love the stories. People, people understand stories much better than 
dry PowerPoint presentations. So uh, I put a collection of them into the book, and there are 76 in there. Uh, and, and I think they're a very good selection. Yeah, and, and it's separated into, into eight parts, which represent different categories of innovators. So you have the artist, the business leader, the genius, the inventor, the maverick, the pioneer, the scientist, and the visionary. So I, I know it's probably too much to ask you how to describe each one of these eight categories, uh, but do you have maybe a couple of favorites, and uh, could you talk a little bit about how they're distinct from one another? Well, um, they are distinct, but at the same time, I think we can learn from each of them. And business leaders can learn from sports people, and uh, they can learn from artists, and they can learn from generals and musicians. And each of them has a lesson to tell in terms of how they made their breakthroughs and how they thought about the problems they faced and how they overcame the difficulties, the challenges uh, that presented themselves. So I don't really have a favorite. I, I, I love all the stories, to be honest. <laughs> okay, nice. Who would be some that fall into the the genius category? Well, the genius, there's quite a few could, but I put uh, Beethoven, Michelangelo, Mozart, Pythagoras, and Shakespeare into that category. And it's difficult for us to learn lessons from these people because they're, they're on a different planet from us, really, in terms of their intellectual capability. But nonetheless, there are lessons, I think, that we can learn. For example, William Shakespeare borrowed most of the plots for his plays from, from previous works, and he wasn't uh, embarrassed about doing that at all. It was quite common in those days. And if, if borrowing ideas is good enough for William Shakespeare, it's good enough for us. And he also made up a lot of words. If there wasn't a word in the English language which suited him, he made one up, um, and, that, and that then went into the lexicon. So um, he, was, he was a great innovator in his day. Yeah, and the, the artist section, sticking with Shakespeare, although he was in the genius section, but the artist section features a common theme of rejecting the fear of upsetting people. So you talk about Madonna, Roy Lichtenstein, Salvador Dali, and they all created controversial art but didn't let negative criticism present them from creating what they felt they should. Well, that's a theme that comes up very often, that um, uh, people who do new creative things face rejection face opposition uh, in all sorts of walks of life. And they, they've just got to have the balls to overcome that. And uh, you, you look at the great artists, they do that. But also engineers and uh, business leaders, all sorts of people have that to face that same sort of difficulty that any truly radical idea initially appears absurd. It appears ridiculous. And people will line up to, to shoot it down. Yeah. And one of the most interesting anecdotes in the book certainly one I was not familiar with until I read it, was that milk chocolate was created by a candle maker who wanted to use his candle molds and equipment in a different way. And this is a... Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. It's the story of Daniel Peter, and he was a Swiss um, candle maker. And uh, kerosene lamps came along, and they, they uh, really undermined the market for, for candles because kerosene lamps were just so much more convenient. Um, so he thought, what can I do? And it's a very common problem if technology comes along, if an innovation somewhere else comes along and starts to kill your business, you've got to ask, what skills do we have which we can transfer to another field? And he thought, I've got liquid pouring skills. That's what I've got. So what other liquid could I pour? And he knew about chocolate. Uh, so he started pouring chocolate. But at that time, chocolate was dark and bitter. Uh, and he wanted to produce a milk chocolate. Uh, but every, every time he attempted to do it, the milk curdled. It went rancid. It, it just tasted horrible. But fortunately for him, 
living in the same small village as him was a man called Henri Nestlé. And he developed a condensed milk for children, for babies. And when uh, Daniel Peter tried the condensed milk in the dark chocolate, it worked and it made milk chocolate. And they formed the Nestlé company between them. And the rest is history. Uh, milk chocolate took over the world. Uh, but it all came about because a candlestick maker uh, had to change uh, his 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 job, his company, because kerosene lamps were putting him out of business. Yeah. And one of the main tenets of innovation and something that the majority of the famous innovation stories in your book boil down to is that if businesses want to be serious about innovation, they can't just play it safe in this day and age. So many businesses in this, in, at least in their outset, are risk avoidant. What advice can you give to help companies move past this? Well, it's an attitude, and the attitude has to come from the leader. Uh, and uh, leaders talk about this a lot. Uh, they say, uh, we want to encourage experimentation. We, innovation is the lifeblood of our company. But then as soon as somebody comes up with a radical idea, they, they find fault with it, and they point out all the difficulties, uh, which is a very easy thing to do. The more experienced you are, the more intelligent you are, the easier it is to find fault with other people's ideas. And they've got to stop themselves doing that. And... Um, there are quite a number of things you can do, but one is to have a program where you deliberately try new things. The other is to empower people uh, at all levels just to experiment and to say failure's okay, provided we learn from it. And there's so many great stories in the book from some of our top leaders. If you had to pick one or two that maybe people don't know about that you think they would be interested in reading and learning more about, uh, which would they be? Well, so the French Revolution was in 1789, and 100 years later, in 1889, the elders of Paris decided that they wanted a monument uh, to celebrate the centenary of the French Revolution. And they put out a competition to all sorts of people to design something to uh, commemorate uh, that centenary. And um, a brilliant engineer called Gustave Eiffel submitted a design for the largest building in the world, uh, the tallest, the highest uh, it was an iron structure, and it was a very, very radical, much, much higher than any other building that had ever been built. Uh, uh, any cathedral or the pyramids were the, the only things that were uh, even close. Um, and uh, he submitted the idea, and that people found it interesting, but then there was a huge groundswell of opinion against it, and um, many, many eminent uh, politicians and leaders of French society formed a group to oppose it because they said it would be so ugly and it would destroy the Paris skyline. It would overpower Notre Dame and the Arc de Triomphe and everything else. And they were right, of course. Uh, uh, so that, that was his difficulty. Uh, what can you do about that? And he overcame that problem with a very clever argument. He said, well, it's only a temporary structure. We can take it down. As soon as the exhibition's over, as soon as we're fed up with it, we can take it down. So let's just put it up there to show what the French can do. He appealed to national pride. He said, let's prove to the world that the French can build the tallest structure that's ever been built. Let's just do that to prove it. And then if we're not happy, we can take it down. And that satisfied the critics. And they said, all right, if we're taking it down, we can take it. And it's remained there to this day. And it's the most visited paid monument in the world, the Eiffel Tower. It's become the symbol of Paris. Um, and the lesson for innovators, humble innovators, uh, like the likes of you and me, is if you've got a controversial proposition, and there's a lot of opposition, say, let's do, run it as a pilot. Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we can always stop. And very often you get approval for a pilot uh, where you wouldn't get approval for a, a major project. 
Yeah, and and having had a glass of champagne at the top of the Eiffel Tower <laughs> last summer with my uh, then fiance now wife, I'm so glad that they did not tear down the Eiffel Tower <laughs> after the fact. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's a fantastic view from the top, isn't it? Absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, so let me ask you about a blog post that you wrote recently that's on your site at destinationinnovation.com. Uh, and you say if the headline is, if you want a great idea, start with a great many ideas. Um, what's the kind of guiding principle behind that? And where have we maybe been uh, programmed in the wrong way to think about how to approach problems and answers for them? Well, so at school, we're taught there's an answer. There's a right answer for every problem. Uh, you know, who was the 30th president of the USA? There's a, there's a correct answer. And we tend to, when we go into business, we tend to think there's a problem, there's a correct answer. Sales are down, therefore we should reduce prices and that will boost sales. So that's the, the canonical answer and off we go. But uh, in business, there isn't just one answer. There are many, many possibilities. Um, and typically, if you try to find a lot of ideas, you will end up with some better ideas than your first idea. So your first idea may be a good idea, but if you have a brainstorm with a lot of people, you will come up with something better, trust me. And uh, very often when I run brainstorm sessions with corporate clients, we will generate 100, 120 ideas uh, and we'll number them. And then when we go through the evaluation and use criteria to select the best ones, the really creative ideas which make it to the shortlist are the high numbered ideas. Then the ideas which came through later, most of the obvious bland routine ideas come through early. And then when you're using more advanced techniques and stimuli, you get more creative ideas. Um, so if you've got a tough problem, by all means, come up with an idea, but then try to come up with another 20 ideas or another 50 ideas. And I'll almost guarantee that one of those will be better than your first idea. Yeah. And in another post on the site, you talk about a literal leap of the imagination. And uh, you, you've mentioned athletes a few times in the story, people figuring out ways to do things with their bodies that have never been done before. So what can the Fosbury flop teach us about thinking like an innovator? Well, that's that. Uh, and Dick Fosbury is in the book as one of the great innovators. And, um, you know, the, the, the audience at the 1968 Olympic Games in, Olympic City, in, in Mexico City was amazed to see a man go over the high jump with his back to the bar because no one had ever done it before. Everyone before had gone over with the, the stomach to the bar in the Western roll or the straddle method, as it was called. And he thought, is there a better way to do a high jump? And fortunately for him, technology had changed because until uh, quite close to that time, high jump pits had been sand pits. Uh, but he had the technology to have a foam pit that was built up so that he could land safely on the back of his neck, on his shoulders. Um, and he found that by turning and bending his back, his body, going over backwards, he could raise his center of gravity higher, and he became the world champion with a new world record. And subsequently, everyone copied it. Um, but he had to face enormous criticism. A lot of coaches thought it was a stupid thing to do, and it would encourage kids to break their necks and all sorts of things. Uh, but he he persisted, and uh, it was quite literally a leap of the imagination. Yeah, and you write in the book about the way that the, I believe it's the CEO of IKEA thinks about employees and, and customers in IKEA. Can you talk a little bit about his approach to you know, those different constituencies and how uh, it's kind of revolutionized their business? Yeah, so he, he is a, a servant leader, Ingvar Kamprat, he's called, and he founded IKEA a long time ago, and he's still uh, active in the business, even though he's very old. He's about 90 now. Um, 
And he's an example of frugal innovation. He drives an old uh, Volvo car. He doesn't spend much money. He treats all of the employees as partners and brothers and colleagues rather than as subordinates. Uh, and he encourages them to try new things. They're a very innovative company. They do lots of interesting, clever things, uh, humorous things they do. Um, and they revolutionized our approach to furniture and furniture buying. And they also did something which has become a little more common now. They transferred part of the job to the customer. So instead of getting your furniture already assembled, you have to assemble it yourself. Instead of them delivering you the furniture, you have to go into the warehouse and act as the storeman and, and get the furniture. So uh, they transferred quite a few of the tasks to the customer, and the customers seem to like that. Um, so he is a, an interesting example of a servant leader who's really revolutionized the whole sector. They like it up until the point they get it home and have to put it together. I, <laughs> I know from personal experience. <laughs> uh, okay, so Paul, there are 76 stories in the book. Are there any that you that you didn't include but wish that you could have looking back on it in retrospect? Well, there are a lot more that I would like to have put in. And, and when we get to the second edition, I'd like to put in um, Tim Berners-Lee, who, whose brilliant idea of the hyperlink uh, enabled the whole World Wide Web. I don't know how he didn't get in. Uh, and uh, Henry Ford isn't in. James Dyson isn't in. There, there are a number that I'd, I'd like to get in the next edition um, because the, there are lessons that we can learn from them too. But there's still an awful lot of value in this book and, and uh, some great stories for anyone that's interested in history, thinking, or innovation. Okay, nice. And we'll mention this in the outro and in the show notes for the podcast. Uh, your website is destination-innovation.com. A number of uh, resources there, including an innovation audit, information on all of the books, and a number of your recent uh, blog posts that we've some of which we've covered in this podcast. Uh, anywhere else people should be looking out for you, Paul? Obviously, Twitter. Any, anything else that you would care to add that's maybe on your site that you think people would would find useful? Well, if you like the puzzles, I've got a puzzles forum, lateral puzzles. Uh, dot com uh, lateral puzzles all one word or if you just search for lateral puzzles and people set and solve puzzles interactively there um, and uh, we run webinars and do all sorts of things there too so that's a fun place if you just like the puzzles uh, but if you're interested in the more serious business aspects then the website and the blog uh, and twitter are the places okay very nice well paul thanks so much for joining us today to talk about lateral thinking and how to think like an innovator much appreciated my pleasure will If you'd like to learn more about Paul Sloan, you can follow him on Twitter at at Paul Sloan. That's Sloan with an E. You can also visit his website at destination-innovation.com. You can buy his books, including the newest one, Think Like an Innovator, on his website or on Amazon.com. If you liked what you heard on this episode of the podcast, please help us spread the word about it on social media. If you choose to do so on Twitter, don't forget to mention at Paul Sloan and at Three Pillar Global. Now, rather than publishing an episode the day after Christmas, the Innovation Engine is going to go into a very brief hibernation mode for the next few weeks. So we'll be enjoying the holidays with friends and family, but we'll be back in your lives on January 9th when we're pleased to welcome Mary Tressler to the podcast to talk about the upcoming O'Reilly Design Conference. That conference will take place in San Francisco for March 19th to March 22nd of 2017, and it's an opportunity for any attendees to learn about business, design, 
and technical topics of critical relevance in designing the future. So don't miss that episode on January 9th. It'll be some great food for thought for the rest of the year in 2017. And we look forward to being back with you then. Enjoy the holidays. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine podcast is produced by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. You can subscribe to the Innovation Engine on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And you can also ensure that you never miss an episode by going to threepillarglobal.com slash podcast and subscribing to receive fresh episodes in your inbox each time one comes out. You can also download our very own iOS app by going to the iTunes App Store and searching for the Innovation Engine Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.